0: O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Throughout the month of August, we have been moving through several different scripture lessons that have taught us about losing and being found. If you remember all the way back to that first Sunday in August, we talked about the story of the prodigal son, or as I called it, the lost child, in which we hear that familiar parable of Jesus about a son leaving home, spending all of his inheritance in every bad way you can conceive, almost losing his mind and finally coming home expecting to have a father mad at him but finding instead a loving father who throws a party to welcome his lost child home. The second week, though, we read a challenging story about Judas, a lost disciple, who puts his own political ideology ahead of Jesus, and who, for whatever reason, decides he has chosen the wrong Messiah, and who gives him up for a little bit of money. We see a disciple who finds himself lost along a path that leads to his own self-destruction. But we also saw a group of lost disciples who also don't have a great record, who deny, who run away, and yet in the end find home with Jesus who says you are forgiven. Not everyone has to stay lost forever. Last week, if you were with us, we read the story of Philemon, an important Christian leader who is confronted by Paul, who invites him to consider giving up his slave in exchange for gaining a brother. And in so doing, show the whole community the power of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. So my hope is that in these few weeks of study together, we have seen the deep truth that all of us, no matter our circumstance, can find ourselves lost, and all of us, no matter what we have done, can find our way home through the love and power of Jesus Christ. Today, however, we focus on slightly different uh, issue. Today, we focus on a lost love and the danger that can come when a community forgets how to love. Now, you may be thinking, love is not exactly the thing I associate with the book of Revelation. I think more of beasts and battles and weird symbols and a whole bunch of confusing stuff that I'd rather not read this early on a Sunday morning. But what I want to show you from just this one little section early on in the book of Revelation is a key to understanding the whole thing. And that is to focus on the danger of losing love and the power that comes when love abides in the heart of the community. But I want to give you a little bit of context before we dive headlong into Revelation. Revelation is written by a man named John. And John lived during the latter part of the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian. Now, I know many of you probably have forgotten your ancient Roman history, so let me just remind you. Uh, Domitian is around 80 A.D. And we know that from Roman sources, the emperor Domitian made a change. You see, prior to Domitian, all the emperors, when they died were elevated to divine status and worshipped as gods. And Domitian thought, why wait? If you're going to worship me after I die, why don't we just start that now? And so Domitian began to set up temples to himself around the Roman Empire. He even took on a new title. In addition to all those fancy titles the emperors had, he decided to add to his title Deus et Dominus, God. And Lord. And so, in every province of the empire, there would be a state temple in which the people were asked, and then later more than asked, to go to the temple to make a little offering and to burn some incense in honor of the emperor. And in Asia, which we think of now as modern day Turkey, where John is living those Romans there decide to make it a requirement to go to the state temple in order to then trade in the market. So if you wanted to go to the market to buy your goods or to sell your goods, you had to first stop by the state temple, make a little offering, burn a little incense, say a little prayer for the emperor, and then go about your day. Now John, as the leader of the Christians in Ephesus, said let's not do this in fact John agitated publicly and vociferously against this requirement you should not make us do this and Christians we're going to boycott now the Romans didn't think John was much of a threat economically but they got tired of him agitating so publicly and Rather than execute him and make him a martyr, they decided to exile him to a tiny island off the coast called Patmos, where he'd be out of the way to do nobody any problems or any troubles, except they forgot to take away his pencil and paper. And so while on Patmos, he commits himself to prayer and to worship. And one day, early on a Sunday morning, while John is in worship, he receives a vision. He's led by God to write a letter to seven major churches in Asia in order to encourage them to resist the emperor, a call to them to remain faithful to God in Christ and to endure the consequences of your faith, even if it means going hungry. For in the end, you know that God will prevail. And so that's the context in which John begins to write these letters writing down these visions. Now, all the other visions about the, 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 the beasts and all those things, those are great things. We'll talk about those later. I'll do a Bible study. Don't worry about that. Today we're focusing on these seven letters, and really just one of the letters that John writes to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he writes. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's what he writes. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, have found them instead to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. So far, so good, right? Now, to some Christians, having to visit the state temple, make a quick offering, burn some incense in honor of the emperor, wasn't that big of a deal. He's not really a God. What does it really matter? And if the choice is to do that or to starve, maybe we should just play act, cross our fingers, do something, right? And certainly with this connection to whether or not you live or die, there were some Christians in Ephesus that perhaps were telling each other, look, this is just kind of a necessary evil. It's just like paying your taxes, you do it whether or not you want to but just do it and go about your business and they'll leave you alone. Just get the government off your backs and don't worry about it. But to John, this struck to the heart of the faith. Either Jesus was Lord or he wasn't. Either you worship God in Christ or you worship the emperor. There was no gray area in John's mind. And in the letter to the Ephesians, John commends them for their faithfulness and their endurance not only against Roman persecution, but resisting calls from other Christian leaders who thought the boycott was foolish. The Ephesians are certainly hungry, but God commends them that in spite of all of their facing, they have not grown weary. Can you hear the butt coming? I don't know if like you, sometimes I feel like I'm getting buttered up for something. And maybe the Ephesians have felt it coming all along. You're doing a great job, Ephesians. You're wonderful people. You're smart. You're intelligent. You know who's right, who's wrong. You're enduring faithfully. I know you're hungry, but you're doing a great job. I just have one thing that's bothering me about you. In fact, this is how it's written. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, it it seems that in spite of the Ephesians' doctrinal purity, in spite of the patient endurance, in spite of their faithfulness, which has led to hunger, they have not maintained the love for one another. Now, again, I don't know about you. I know this about myself, that from time to time, when I get hungry, I get a little short-tempered. In fact, there's a word for it, perhaps you know it. It's the word hangry, right? That angry hunger. And so we can just imagine that the Ephesians are a little less loving because they haven't been eaten as much. Could we blame them? Wouldn't we be in that same situation if we are beginning to starve because of our faith and then to receive a letter that says, hey, you're not being nice to each other. Come on, keep up. I can only imagine what the Ephesians thought, and it probably wasn't very loving. Christians in Ephesus in the first century had lost so much. Many had lost their reputations when they converted to this new religion. Some had lost family members who didn't understand their new faith. Now they were facing a possible loss of life, and God, through John, decides to chastise them for not being loving? Hardly seems fair. But I think it seems unfair because we modern folk have been convinced to see love as something weak, emotional, something nice, but not certainly strong. Of all the emotions, love is the wishy-washy, gooey feeling. It's because we think of love more like something we sing about in love songs. Or like those um, brilliant British theologians, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, who sang their hit song, All You Need Is Love, which is mostly just the word love repeated over and over. Love, love, love. And you know, when that song came out, it was as... It was as hippy-dippy as you think it was, right? 51 years ago, this song comes out in the height of the Vietnam War. It's broadcast on live television. In fact, when it was broadcast in June of 1967, it was watched by the most people who had ever watched a live television broadcast in the history of television. Seeing the Beatles sing this sweet song. And yet, it was in the midst of a time in which the world was struggling with inequality, with millions living in poverty. And there are the Beatles singing, you know what? All we need is love. And so it's easy to dismiss love as naive, unrealistic, simplistic, or even unwise, right? Love is looked down upon because... Besides that one day of the year when we go buy candy and flowers for each other and we celebrate love, the rest of the, world, rest of the year, we worry about getting taken advantage of by being too loving. You need to be stronger, wiser, tougher. All you need is love? Not really. You need a thick skin, a sharp tongue, a guarded heart, and a wary mind. Because if you're too loving you'll get taken advantage of. You'll get hurt. You'll get the rug pulled out from under you. And so it's easy to dismiss the idea that love is somehow all you need as just simple, sentimental, wishful thinking. But the problem is God happens to agree with the Beatles. Don't take my word for it. Go search in the New Testament and you'll bump into love all over the place. Matthew 22, we read that love is the greatest commandment. John 3, 16, we're told that God loved the world so much he sent Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read that love is the greatest gift. And in 1 John 4, verse 16, we hear these words, God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And even here in the book of Revelation, when Christians are facing a matter of life and death, God tells them, Return to your first love. The love that you had for each other. The love that that comes from God. And then he gives them a warning. He says, if not, if you don't love one another, I'll come to you. Remove your lampstand. Now in the context of Revelation, the lampstand represents the church and the light of Christ shining brightly. And Jesus is saying, Look, if you can't love one another, I'd rather not have you as one of my churches. Now, if you're of a certain age, and there's no need to show hands here, but if you're of a certain age, maybe the age in which you listen to the Beatles live, if you're of a certain age, you might also remember um, a famous speech that Ronald Reagan gave about America being a city shining on a hill. He gave it often and in various contexts, but the reference is to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which he says, You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. And really, I think we misunderstand both Reagan's intention and the fact that he didn't invent it. Not only is he referencing Jesus, he's also referencing another sermon, by another preacher named John Winthrop. John Winthrop was a Puritan, a pilgrim, and one of the first governors of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. On the boat ride over from England in 1630, he preaches a sermon in which he compares their new colony to a shining city on a hill. But the point of his sermon was not, look, we're going to be so great, people are going to look at us and, and just be in awe of us. The point of his sermon was look, everybody, people are going to be looking at us. The eyes of the old world are going to be upon us. And our experiment in religious freedom and in, in forgiveness and in Christian principles and virtue are going to be on display, and they're going to be rooting for us to fail. And we're not going to be able to hide our mistakes. A city on a hill shines and cannot be hidden. What Governor Winthrop was saying was, remember, what we do will be more important than what we say we're going to do. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. If you speak in tongues of angels but don't have love, you're just a noisy gong. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the way the world will know you are my disciples is by how much you love one another. And here in the Revelation of John, we're told, it doesn't even matter if you're the most faithful, the most correct, the most theologically astute, if you have the most and best degrees from the greatest seminaries in the world. It doesn't matter if you're willing to die for me. If you don't love one another, then you've missed the whole point. He then finishes his little letter here by saying, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So just in case we thought that St. Luke's was off the hook, we're told that this letter to Ephesus is also meant for every church in the world. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. It seems that God knew in the very beginning that even though love is the greatest commandment, it will also be the greatest challenge. Because the church is made up of humans, we will often lose Our love. But here's why I think it's so important. Not just because Jesus says to love everybody, that's good, right? Do what Jesus says. But the Ephesians probably didn't even realize it, but God knew that their only hope in remaining faithful, their only hope in enduring the persecution, The only way they would make it till tomorrow was for them to hold on to one another. None of them could face the future alone. None of them could last very long on their own. None of them could be the church by themselves. They needed one another And it was the love of God and each other that had brought them together in the first place. And it was the only thing in this world which would see them through life and through death and through life beyond death. Love is not weak, love is not naive. The love of God in Jesus Christ lived out in the community that He calls His body, that love is stronger than even death itself. And if you lose that, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how hungry you get. Doesn't matter how impressed you are with yourself. If you lose that love, you've lost the whole thing. But if you return, if you repent, and if you say, God, I want to be more loving. Help me to love even my brother, even my sister, even my enemy if you return to that love, this is the promise. You will eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. John ends this little letter with a reminder of how it all began. In Eden, we're in the middle of the garden. Not only the tree of good and evil, but the tree of life. Life. And then at the end of Revelation, all the way at the end, when John sees his final vision of a new heaven and a new earth, there in the middle of the city is the tree of life. That tree is a sign of God's enduring promise that whosoever abides in God's love will abide forever. So you see, the Beatles were right. All you need is love. Let's pray. Almighty and ever-loving God, we praise you this morning and thank you for your great love toward us. We admit, Lord, that sometimes we find ourselves unloving unwilling to forgive others, unable to let go of past grudges, even, Lord, in the church. So, Lord, we pray that you would bring to our thoughts and minds this day those to whom we have been unloving, that we might seek out reconciliation. Lord, we ask that you would bring to our minds those who have been unloving toward us, and ask that you would help us to forgive. Lord, we know that there is so much in this world that brings us anxiety and concern, confusion and uncertainty about the days ahead. But Lord, we ask that you would remind us that it is your love which has bound us together. And it is your love that will keep us that will keep us together and keep us not only in this life, but in the life to come. So, Lord, we pray that we would be more loving so that the world might know how much you love all of us. This we pray uniting our voices together with the prayer that we are taught to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation